Hello, I'm Bryn Lucas and welcome to another episode of It's All About Me. And this week my guest is wine expert, you'll know him from Saturday Kitchen and a whole lot more. It's Ollie Smith, aka Jolly Ollie. So, Ollie Smith, Jolly Ollie, thank you very much for joining me on this wonderful podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. I, I really love the world of podcasting. Intrigued to find out what you're going to ask me and up for absolutely anything. Well, that's a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? A dangerous <laughs> thing. I don't know what I'm going to ask you. This is a kind of on the hoof, <laughs> loosely researched conversation. <laughs> so tell me. <laughs> I, I, I believe in honesty from the top. Quite I well. have met you. I have worked with you. I say worked with. I have stood on the stage and watched you do your thing a number of times and wine is your is your world. Yeah, I do seem to be swimming in uh, lakes of the stuff and surfing ever larger waves of it. And it all came about for me uh, from a Saturday job I was doing when I was about probably 17, maybe 18 years old in Jersey, in the Channel Islands. And I was delivering boxes for a wine company there called Orange and Company Vintners. And I was effectively what they called the storeman. So I'd look after the stock and uh, cart these boxes around and deliver it to the lucky people who were going to enjoy what was inside. And there was a guy in the cellar with me called Eamon, who was a retired publican. And he he was an Irish guy and he had this fantastic accent that I can never do justice to. He would explain wine to me in a way that made perfect sense. And I remember him saying to me, you know, it's about the name of the place. It's about this flavour. But really, Ollie, it's about listening to what people really want and then using your expertise to link them to a wine they can afford and one that will just give them pleasure you know take yourself out of the equation it doesn't matter if you like it or not find something they will love that's your role and I thought wow that is a complete revelation it was always I think with wine critics you know it was always kind of well this is the best wine in the world and if you don't like it and it smells of sweaty socks then you don't know what wine is I came to it from the other way I thought no no actually I think it's about each individual person and what they love and celebrating that because we're all different, Brent. We've, you know, we've all got different favourite movies or bands or books, just as it is with, you know, food. You know, I quite like a bit of blue cheese and a walnut on my pizza, which is controversial. But other people, you know, they like Hawaiian pizzas. You know, I've, I've, my friend Sean, I'm sure he won't mind me revealing that his favourite pizza has both ham and pineapple on it, which I know some of the listeners will be thinking it's an outrage. Sean should be hunted down and made to atone for his error. Um, but, you know, we were all different and I celebrate that. I think really it's about fun and it's about connections and the stories behind the wine. So I came to it from a kind of how can it make you feel? You know, what does it really mean? And I also came at it from the view that, you know, really, you don't need to spend a fortune to find a great bottle. You know, if I can step in and recommend something to liven the spirits and just give that bit of invigoration to the day without kind of having to remortgage, then so be it. I'm delighted to be able to do it. It's lovely that you can get these decent bottles of wine for seven, eight quid. I think it's nice because in my mind, a good bottle of wine was always way out of my price range. Yeah, I think that's bang on. And there really is something out there. There's a flavour to satisfy every palate and every pocket at a particular moment at any one time. So if you like, I kind of think of myself as being a, if I could be helpful and useful and be a sort of matrix of information and cut out all of the kind of choice and hard work that people don't really have the time to research and taste every single wine on the shelves. If I can cut all that out and get somebody as fast as possible to the point of enjoying themselves, really, that is all I'm about. It's about enjoyment and fun. Yeah, we see that in the way you present it as well. Just incidentally, I'm not the sort of person that would turn down a Hawaiian pizza, but I've recently taken to putting anchovies on a Hawaiian pizza. 
Mm, do you know what? I'm a big fan of the anchovy and I'm quite picky about them. I think you can have an everyday anchovy. You know, you get those quite sort of crunchy brown salty ones that are quite nice. And then those lovely lush silvery ones that are just full of juicy, salty ocean bounty. I'm a huge fan of that idea. And I'll tell you why. The contrast of the sweet pineapple works with the salty ham. And by adding the anchovy, you are just enhancing and boosting that rich umami salty flavour. I'm with you, Bryn. Secretly, I do like the Hawaiian. To be honest, I can't think of a pizza that I don't like. In all good conscience seriously is there really a pizza out there you wouldn't eat there is there is there is what's yours the calzone i don't see the point why fold it over well i have an answer to this because i used to live in edinburgh and edinburgh is a beautiful city and it's somewhere where i learned how to drink i learned how to kind of engage with you know the civic and social world of you know the arts theater sport murrayfields up there it was just a, a, a wonderful time for me in life but the thing it also introduced me to was the calzone and i was on george the fourth bridge quite late at night maybe we'd been out having a few jars and I was on my way home and, you know, they're selling the usual pizzas and, you know, everyone's kind of piling in. And I saw this folded over thing and I thought, wow, it looks like a, a kind of Italy's answer to the Cornish pasty. I'll give it a go. And I'll tell you why it's amazing. On a cold night in Edinburgh, when you're walking home after a, a, a few good pints, there is nothing more insulating and hearty than holding a hot calzone in your hands and squirting it into your face. <laughs> 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 You're always good for a sound bite, Ollie. <laughs> right, so let's cast everything back. Let's go way back in time. So you have an older brother. Yes, I do. Yeah, Will. Who was born in Winchester, it says on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is telling the truth. He was born in Winchester. My dad was a teacher and my mum before she retired, was a district nurse. And they were living in Winchester at the time, working away, living on Cannon Street in a little cottage. And uh, yeah, Will was born there. And he has very fond memories of Winchester. I know Winchester from filming and going back and, uh, the you know, the river's there. And it's, it's the most extraordinary kind of historic place. You can feel the kind of roots of of endless strata of politics and society and ideas just seeping up through the ground. I think there was a mill there I filmed in, which is really ancient and I remember standing in it, and I can't remember the exact date, but it was centuries and centuries old. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it might even stretch back to Roman times. But the idea that flour was being milled there and feeding the population, stretching back all that time, I, I just I, I find it invigorating and wonderful to think of the historic settings of so many of our British cities. They are absolutely amazing. But yeah, from Winchester sprung forth my brother Will, and he is he's a massive inspiration to me, to be honest. He's always had an exceptional attitude to hard work. He's always been somebody who would just go the extra mile to deliver something. I mean, this in a good way. He fixates on things and locks it down. You know, I remember, for example, you know, when the Travelling Wilburys formed as a band with George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynne and, you know, the rest of them. My brother just got so into it. I remember that summer, it was just wall-to-wall Wilburys. And that's sort of how he's applied himself to his life. So he's now won two Emmys as a screenwriter and producer for Veep on HBO. And he also wrote and appears in The Thick of It on the BBC. Um, he, he was a stand-up. And I remember he, he kind of announced that he was leaving home after he'd left school and done his, his degree. We were all having, having Sunday lunch around the table. Um, and we're a close family, you know, my mum and dad are just the loveliest people imaginable. They've always been very supportive and kind and, and very modest and sweet. But we were sitting around having Sunday lunch and my brother said, uh, um, I've decided I'm going to jack in my job at the library and I'm going to move to London and become a stand-up comedian. And there was this extraordinary pause. And I just remember my mum looked up and just said, pass the sprouts. And they didn't know what to say. I mean, what would you, in those days, it was such an, an out there idea. 
how would you do that? What would you, what, what would be the first step? So I remember he moved to uh, Islington. He got a job at Press Records and he started doing open spots on the circuit. And from there to today, two Emmys under his belt. He's the most successful and lovely person. And it's all down to that application. You know, the same application that he had with his devotion to the Travelling Wilburys. Uh, he just applied it to his life and hard work. My, it, it really pays off. So yeah, he's, he's a deeply lovely and thoughtful bloke. Well, it sounds like you are incredibly tight, incredibly close to your brother, but is he funny? He is funny. He's really, really funny. He's very insightful and thoughtful. Doesn't drink very much. Occasionally has a whiskey and then gets the giggles. Um, And in fact, I remember he was writing early in his career on a show for Bob Monkhouse. And I was invited to the rap party and I just moved to London and I was kind of jobbing around. And I was, you know, I actually started out writing scripts for the radio and I was sharing a house with many other people, including my brother. Uh, We won't... (laughs) reveal too many details of that but it was a, it was a, a fascinating and colorful time but yeah i remember going to this rap party at uh, white city the bbc's round wonderful structure and walked in the room and bob's at the door and he turns to me and he goes oh hello who are you and i said oh i'm my name's ollie I'm, I'm i'm will's brother will smith one of the gag writers on the show and he said it's great to meet you ollie and i thought well that was pretty amazing i met bob Monkhouse. wow um the party went on and then in the corner of my eye i just saw somebody you know messing around with some helium balloons in a way that said Maybe I've had one too many. And I saw my brother with a bottle of Bex in his hand and I thought, he's had one beer and it's time to leave. (laughs) And as we left, as I sort of uh, gently ushered my brother to the door, uh, Bob just grabbed me and said, oh, uh, going so soon. I said, oh, yeah, we're just just off off home. And he said, it was a real pleasure to meet you, Ollie. And I thought, wow, I couldn't believe that he'd remembered me. But also, I just couldn't believe that he would be bothered to say goodbye to somebody. And yeah, it really marked him out, actually, as somebody I thought, mm, that's, that's a lesson worth, uh, worth paying note to. And I remember, you know, my brother and I actually went on that night. He wanted to go to St. Paul's Cathedral for some reason. One bottle of beer, I'm telling you, my brother is just on fire. We ended up sitting on St. Paul's Cathedral steps to watch the dawn. That was his wish. And it was an epic night in our lives. And I remember he'd begun his gag writing career. I'd sort of begun writing scripts on the radio. And we were just taking stock. And the city was quiet. And yeah, I really felt like, wow, I love my brother. And it felt like, not that the world was at our feet, we had a lot of work to do, but it felt like we were determined to do it. And yeah, that memory stands out in my mind. I I really cherish that moment. What's the age difference then? Well, this is a great question, Brim, because uh, people always say who's the older. And I think in previous years, you know, I would have said maybe when we were teenagers and early 20s, I'd have said he's older in actual age, but I'm kind of older in worldly uh, stuff. But now I would probably say, yeah, we're where we are. He's about two years older than me. Let me think. How old am I? 45. So he's 47. He's about to be 48. It uh, depends when the podcast goes out. He might already be 40. If it's after June the 8th, 2020, he's 48. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad we did. What I'm thinking is people sitting in their cars, driving along, having a listen, trying to do the maths on their fingers and, you know, taking their eyes off the road for a minute. So so if you're you're driving your car right now, don't worry about it. Ollie's brother, Will, is either 47 or 48. That's all you need to know. He said, do you know what? I think I might have got that wrong, in fact. Anyway, he's around that. He's heading to, we're all heading, heading in the right direction. Let's put it that way. Let's not put facts in this podcast, all right? Let's, Let's keep it vague. Bother. Why actually reveal somebody's age when you could just reveal how lovely they are and how tall, in the case of my brother. He's very tall. Do we reveal how tall? Or was just say a bit more than you? He's much more than me. I'm quite short. I mean, I'm not kind of, you know, extraordinarily short, but I think I'm 5'10", and he's, I think he must be 6'3", maybe even a bit taller than that. You are a good average. Oh, you're too kind, Brim. 
Right, so your brother was born in Winchester. What about you? Wikipedia says you were born in Jersey. Yeah, Wikipedia's got that bit wrong. A lot of people won't believe this is true, uh, however it is. I am a northerner, born in Darlington, and I love that place for a number of different reasons. You know, we lived actually at the time. Mum and Dad moved from Winchester. They they went up to Whitney Weir, it's a little village, um, and I, I just have such happy memories of living there. The community out there, everybody was just so super warm and kind, and... I fondly return whenever I can, and I'm always knocked out by walking down the street in Darlington. How many people actually do know that that I'm, you know, I, I was born there, and I'm very proud of it. I, I really love it. And actually, my uncle and aunt and all my cousins are Geordies. They live down the road in, in Newcastle, and yeah, so there's a big family connection with that part of the world. And whenever I'm up in County Durham and the Rolling Hills, just yeah, it just steals my heart. It really does. Yeah, so I'm born in County Durham, and then we did move to Jersey when I was, I think, three or four years old. So I remember the first night in Jersey. I don't think I'd ever seen the sea. Well, I've never had a memory of it anyway. And I remember lying in my little bedroom. We were quite close to the sea, and we could hear it. And I remember somebody, I think mum or dad or whoever it was, I said, "What's that noise?" And they said, "Oh, it's the sea. Don't worry, it's just the tide coming in." It's, it's rising. And I thought, oh, oh, OK. And I remember I couldn't sleep all night because nobody told me that it was going to stop rising. I got the fear that it would just keep rising up the stairs and into my bedroom and carry me away. I do love the sea. I have a, a complicated relationship with the sea, but I, I have this healthy respect for the power of the sea. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, understandable, I think. But what was Jersey like for you then growing up? Jersey was, again, a remarkable place to grow up. I was there till about the age of 10 and I, I, was, uh, I was always into music because dad was a music teacher. You know, I sang in choirs and I, I played a couple of instruments. I was playing the piano and the French horn and, you know, I was, I was, I was just into it. I really liked it. I remember hearing a record of a choir, the King's College Choir in Cambridge, and I was hooked. I just thought, wow, I love that sound. I just really wanted to find out more about how 16 boys, in this case, could sound like one voice. So I, I kind of took singing lessons and I became interested in the idea of going for a shot. I wanted to have an audition to see if I could get in. And my parents found all this quite intriguing and, and I kind of badgered them and said, I really want to have a go. And I remember it was November and I must have been 10. We went up to Cambridge, it was freezing cold, did the audition and the choir master took my parents into a little room and I was sitting there thinking, oh, what's going to happen? Is he going to say no or yes or what? And he said, yeah, yeah we, we love him, you know, love the voice, but he has to start like in, in four weeks in January. And I remember the shock of the decision that had to be made literally that day because they had to sign me up, get all the stuff done. And we went for a walk and mum and dad were saying, well, it's a big deal. You'd be going to boarding school. Yes, it's a scholarship and all the rest of it. And it's an opportunity. It's not the sort of thing that my family would have, you know, I, I wouldn't have ever been sent to a boarding school or I wouldn't have had that kind of an education or it, it just wasn't on the on the radar. Hmm. So to have the chance, and I remember walking on that frosty day and it was cold and oppressive and dark. And I said to my parents, Let's go to Evensong in the chapel at King's College. And we went and listened to the choir. And I came out and went, I want to do it. And I did. And it was terrifying. And there's great things I remember about it. There's the usual stuff you'd expect about missing your family and your meals and your pets. You know, I love the cat and all the kind of home comforts. It did feel austere, suddenly being thrown into a world where you're sharing a, a room with maybe 20, 30 other kids in kind of iron bedsteads. It wasn't like a Victorian workhouse or anything. You know, there were it was a, a good duty of care, but it was a massive change from my life in a very warm, loving household to suddenly be 25 hours singing every week on top of your schoolwork, living away from home in a city I didn't know anything about. And 
singing in a in a chapel in this very kind of religious environment. And I found the whole thing just extraordinary, Bryn. And I remember looking up at that stained glass and being in that building. And there was a lot going on in my life at that time. And, and between the age of 10 and sort of 12 and a half, when my voice broke and I stopped, that building just has, yeah, a lot of content in my life. You know, peering up at the architecture, it's enormous, basically, if you haven't been in or seen it. If you imagine like a, a really long tunnel of multicolored light with the most extraordinary vaulted roof that just feels like it's in the sky. You know, if you're 10 years old looking up, it's so big. And yeah, the impact of what people were saying, I didn't really understand a lot of it. Probably the best way to put it is, I'll tell you, I learned a thing or two about acoustics, performing, and how to project. And I owe most of that to daily kind of delivering in that building. Your booming voice comes yeah. from that <laughs> environment. Yeah, well, I don't know if I've quite got the Brian Blessed effect. It was an intriguing time and um, a big sort of step for me very early in life for independent living, if you like. You know, much as I saw my mum and dad occasionally, I mean, realistically, I would see them maybe at half term, not always, but certainly in the holidays. But, you know, when you really draw back from that you would sing up to christmas day so the christmas holidays was like a week hmm. similar at easter another week summer you're on tour you know i was very lucky i got to go to japan i saw mount fuji i went to east berlin when the berlin wall was still up and these are the things that you know are going to have an effect on anybody but i guess the the counter side of it is i didn't spend time with will my mum and dad and i'm so delighted that we're all so close still to this day because you know they're my my world and i, I love them Were they living in Jersey then, or had they moved back to the English shores, should we say? We, yeah, we called it the mainland when yes. we lived in Jersey. Um, yeah, so, you know, they were still living in Jersey. My brother became obsessed with Bergerac. He managed to memorise every single episode. So you could give him the name of any kind of actor or movie or whatever, and he would link it back to a specific episode of Bergerac in six moves or less. And he has never to this day been caught out. The man is a, is a machine of a mind. <laughs> Good for mastermind, I suppose. Right, Bergerac aside, you mentioned that you grew up in Jersey. What was it actually like for you? I kind of have, again, really lovely, fond memories of Jersey. You know, Jersey was where you know, I used to go back as a teenager and, you know, when you're kind of out and about as a teenager and you discover girls and parties and occasionally pop to the pub. And that was just completely magical in the summertime. It's the most beautiful island. And then returning years later when I was doing a VT for a show, I remember driving Jim Bergerac's car down the five mile road at St. Juan and thinking, this is extraordinary. So many worlds colliding all in one moment, you know, and driving past the place where I'd go for a bacon roll with my dad on a Sunday morning. But in Jim Bergerac's car being filmed for the BBC, I mean, you, you just can't make this stuff up. At 30 miles an hour maximum because the speed limit. Yeah, 40. Yeah, the, yeah that's, that's, that's heady. 40 is, is really big on Jersey. I mean, that's, whoo. I remember actually teaching my, my, my wife now, Sophie, we've been together a very long time, but we've known each other since I was 17 and she was 16. We were at school together. And um, I remember she came over to stay when she, I guess, must have been 17 because I gave her a first driving lesson in one of the car parks on the five mile road, which is probably very illegal now. But in those days, it was just a, a stretch of kind of sandy dust. And yeah, my, my dad's old Volkswagen GLS, the Silver Beast. Yeah, she, um, she, yeah, she had a first driving lesson from me. Is that what we call it now? Inverted commas, her first driving lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew you'd say something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was a natural. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Took to it like a duck to water. What a teacher you must be, Ollie. What a teacher I don't you know must about be. That. I, th I think the skills and the pupil. <laughs> Moving back to reality. Yeah. <laughs> so you finished school. What did you do after after kind of normal school? 
I did my A-levels and again, I'd kind of been a music scholar at school, you know, pursued my love of singing and French horn and all the rest, but that sort of segued into performing arts. I really loved the theatre, so I'd done a lot of acting around the film society and I was really into all of that. And, you know, I wasn't very sporty, but I did a bit of tennis on the side and, you know, whatever I could get my hands on, I always thought, you've got to give it a go. And when I left university, uh, actually I took a year out. I went to Indonesia as an English teacher, which was something, again, on my own. I went to live in a, a university in a place called Jambi in Sumatra. And I was supposed to be going to the northern tip of Sulawesi to an idyllic diving resort called Manado. And at the last minute, they changed it to, I think it was like a colonial Dutch town originally where they pumped a load of oil and it was pretty industrial. But, you know, when I arrived there, again, I just thought, well, you know, you've been dealt this hand. Let's let's go to the max. And I have had a really enriching experience living there. I was working every day. You know, I had a job effectively and I met a load of extraordinary students and then had the opportunity afterwards. I traveled on my own across the archipelago, climbing volcanoes and, you know, finding old Buddhist temples in the jungle and all that sort of stuff. And actually the highlight for me was, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Bali and Lombok and Java is wonderful. All true. You know, amazing, amazing country. I have huge affection for the people, for the food's incredible. Uh, the landscape is mind-blowing, the wildlife and all of that. But I ended up in, in West, what's called West New Guinea now, which was in those days called Irian Jaya. And I went inland to a place called Wamana. And again, just on my tod, I flew in and hired a guide. And we went kind of whoa, on a big circuit for about two weeks just on our own. And we met lots of, of the local people who they, they don't wear any clothes. Looking back, it was a, an extraordinary opportunity. And again, I, I felt at the time just superbly lucky. I read my kind of journal the other day of, of those bits. And it's, it's really interesting reading, you know, obviously these, you know, alone. We don't really speak the language. I spoke Indonesian, but I didn't speak the dialect there. Hmm. So communication was was tricky, but I, I was obviously thriving. I guess the thing I came away from it was that wherever you are in the world, no matter who you're with, you can always have a connection. And I passionately believe in the innate goodness of people. And we're living in times of horrific injustice, destroying so many lives. We're always going to see, and we have seen, which is encouraging, human spirit coming together giving each other a helping hand, you know, going the extra mile to just help somebody else to have a slightly better life. And I remember, you know, being out there and thinking, if I can live alongside, you know, albeit for a very small time, in this way with these people, this is what I came away with. I just thought they were supremely kind and generous. And yeah, I I just, I love adventures, Bryn. Any adventure, I'm up for it all. I love it. always come across as extremely exuberant positive those sorts of words is there a hidden side of you that isn't that does that the the public persona that we know ollie being this bold bright character do you ever have the opposite i would say that i'd defer to my dad on that because a lot of people say to him is he always like that and my dad says well he's he's exactly like that you know on telly and not but there is another side to me um i meditate daily and i have a quiet time and that and i reflect and just take that time for myself and it's not something i talk about you know a lot but i think it's it's certainly done me a lot of good in just maintaining a a sense of focus and you know being present in the moment and not feeling afraid of the unknown i've always felt that whenever i'm doing any kind of activity, whether it's a live show, being on stage, it is what it is. And if something goes wrong, there's a huge amount of empathy from an audience because things go wrong for everybody. Everybody's dropped a plate at home, a plate of food they've meticulously prepared and about to serve and crash down it goes, you know, and it, it just makes it. And it, we're all living on the edge all the time. We're always in the present moment. And I say, bring it on. It's an 
ever-unfolding adventure. And the more we can communicate with each other and make it as exceptional and invigorating as possible, that's really what I'm all about. Why is it if somebody drops a plate in a restaurant, the restaurant goes, Ray. if someone that's drops a, a plate question. at home, oh, no one, no one goes, Ray. You know what? That's that, that's now known as Bryn's paradox. Yeah. I, I, I think that could be an endless wormhole because... You know, frankly, there is a there is an exception to prove every rule. I think it's uh, it's the idea of you, you don't want to as you get older. I don't know if it's about you, but as as I get older, I try to behave a bit bit more like a grown up. And so when that happens in a restaurant, I I sort of have to bite my tongue. But every <laughs> fibre of my body wants to go. Whey! Oh, I think give it to it. My friend Sean, again, the, the Hawaiian pizza chap, who uh, I'm going to send this to, actually, and he's going to be appalled that I keep bringing him in. But he's one of my oldest friends. He was my my flatmate uh, when we left university, and he's just a, yeah, he's an absolute legend. But he has this theory, and I've always enjoyed this, that uh, any sport could be improved by just adding more balls. So, for example, in football, Sean's idea was always just to shout at any given point in the game, multi-ball! And then just, you know, 30 or more footballs would be fired in, and it would just be a complete free-for-all and all goals count and I love that I just think for a, a set 30 seconds in any tournament you know you're playing good golf suddenly just hosing every inch of the course multi-ball that is brilliant I've got one for Formula 1 go on what's that multi-ball no <laughs> multi-ball <laughs> basically because there's so much difference between the cars and the performance and things like that you know the drivers are arguably pretty much the same what you should do is one lap of every race, it doesn't matter if it's the first lap, the fiftieth lap, or whatever of the race, the driver has to get out and run a lap. Oh, I love it! That is the best ever addition to any sport. And I was, I was at Le Mans, and I loved it. I thought the whole thing was incredible. But you're bang on. Just having a slightly odd change of moment, so they presumably have to be a safe channel with no. barriers. No. no, you're saying they have to run with on all the, the track. cars. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that again, I think that's going to come under Bryn's paradox because I, <laughs> I think I. I'd want, I'd want them to be safe. I'd want them to be behind some kind of, yeah, some kind of barrier. But you We'll know, make it's, it safe. It's, it's, we'll give them a crash helmet, like a like a hard hat, a different sort of crash helmet, a hard hat and a high-vis jacket. By the same token, couldn't you do that in a game of, you know, in, in rugby? One minute in each half, at the choice of each captain, the captain has to jump into a go-kart and do a lap of the field outside <laughs> the perimeter. You know, so there's no, who's in command? What's happening? It's go-kart, uh, go-karts! What about that. snooker? How would that rule apply with snooker, the multi-ball M- one? Multi- I just think, you know, as many balls as you can fit on the table, <laughs> they've got they They've got 30 seconds to just see if they can use the white ball in any way to pop anything. It's a great idea. Great. Idea. I mean, I'm not sure who has the um, the trademark of that one, the copyright, you or me. I oh, know, Sean. It's Sean. Sean, isn't it? Yeah, Sean came up with multi-ball. I think we were drinking a pint of uh, white ball in Cloisters Bar in Edinburgh in about 1994 when he came up with that idea. I remember thinking, this is going to be my best friend for life. He's an extraordinary human being. Multi-ball. <laughs> Amazing. Now, one thing that I think would appeal to you, it certainly appeals to me, is funny drink names. Now, when it comes to wine, they're a bit more a bit more safe, aren't they, inverted commas, but beer has got some pretty funky names coming out there. Do you ever come across a wine that has got the most blissfully incredible name? Yes, there's there's a few actually. I mean, back in the in the old days, you're right, there was always the play on words like, you know, cat's pee on a gooseberry bush. That was one that people remember. And there was arrogant frog, that's a very good wine by uh, Jean-Claude Mass. But the one that I don't think people spot is is a Pitbull de Pinay, and it's made by Baron de Badassery. And I just think that is such a brilliant, the Baron of Badassery. Whoever that person is or was living the dream in France, making wine. I mean, 
I'm, I'm not convinced he was the nicest person in the world, but what a title. Well, I think that's the whole point, isn't it? People drink, drink alcohol. We love it and we like to have fun. And it seems to encourage that. <laughs> so if you can yeah. have a funny name one, bring it on. Yeah, totally. Absolutely right. I brew a beer actually with um, Harvey's Brewery, which is my local uh, brewery here in East Sussex. That is, look, it's my favourite in the in in the world. Really, I mean, it's a taste of home. Remember when we first arrived and I tasted that beer? I thought I'm, n- I'm never going to be able to live more of a stone's throw from the brewery. So I make a beer with them called Jolly Ollie, which is not the most imaginative name in the world, but I make a golden male and a lighter one and a darker one. And yeah, you can find those. I've got these wine bars, Bryn, on cruise ships. Um, called yeah the glass house so you can drink them in there well you know i have family that live in lewis i have cousins that live down there lewis has an aroma of a brewery doesn't it yes you bang on and and when they're brewing i think they brew on a thursday it does have that uh uniquely malty scent that kind of yeah casts its its arms around the town and sort of envelops it i absolutely love it Brian. if you haven't been to lewis warmly recommend grab yourself a pint of harvey's best and uh yeah you'll probably find me you know waiting in the queue for the bar behind you yeah, and go for the Jolly Ollie. Well, if only it was on sale in pubs. Alas, it's only available in the oh. glass house. Do you know what? Having said that, I think there was a rumour because a lot of people did like the beer. I think they might be selling it for their website. So, yeah, have a look at the Harvey's website. If they're not selling Jolly Ollie, email them and demand that they do. We've kind of talked a little bit about your life, your growing up, your relationship with your brother, your, your parents who seem to be the most supportive people uh, on the planet what do they make of your success nowadays in a, in a very sort of sweet way they're obviously discreetly proud I think of what's happened with Will and I but you wouldn't know that they don't you know make any kind of reference to it really and actually I think they're a bit baffled by it they're very modest people and they've never really put pressure on me and Will or questioned any of our life choices about you know the careers that we've taken and effectively we both ran away to the circus you know we both sort of announced we're doing something uh, completely off book and we're going to be self-employed there is no stability or guarantee that this is going to work and they never really you know apart from past the sprouts they never really questioned it so yeah I think you know the nice thing for me actually is that Mum and Dad weren't massive wine drinkers before I got into wine, and then we 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 could have grew together in our passion for it. So now sharing a glass of wine with my dad, you know, and he's getting uh, getting older as the years go by, of course, and and Mum the same. But it's lovely that it sort of doesn't matter the generation or the time. It's just so enjoyable to sit down together and 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 have a yarn and enjoy a glass. Mm, my dad lives in in the states, and my mum lives down in Cornwall, so I don't get to see either of them very often. When I go and see them nowadays, I find myself savoring the most bizarre moments like for example just getting in the car with my dad and we'd be driving down some road in the back end of Arab Alabama doing absolutely nothing apart from just driving and I sometimes find myself looking across at him thinking remember this remember what this looks like and feels like yeah I I think that's a really engaging sentiment and I completely agree I think we are all precious you know it is so easy to let moments go by and to just assume that they will continue unfortunately that's not the nature of life you know we know that life is finite we know that there's a a stopwatch ticking somewhere we don't know the nature of it we don't know you know how it's going to pan out but for me that is not a a kind of maudlin or negative thing on the contrary that makes everything just so special and supremely valuable and the most mundane act of just hanging out can become just the biggest opportunity of your life yeah you don't know until it's gone what you're going to miss you seem to live your life or you seem to come across as living your life that way that, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So just enjoy the ride. 
Yeah, totally. And during lockdown, you know, there's been some extraordinary things that have happened, you know, on a small scale in the household. You know, I've got two daughters who are teenagers and they've been, you know, incredible in the way they've responded. Kind of things that have come out of the blue, like, you know, suddenly our pond was just erupted with frog spawn and there's just so much of it. There's thousands of these things. I didn't know that frogs could each lay like 4,000 eggs. Where are they keeping them all? I cared for our tadpoles and I really sort of did everything I could to to help as many of them along as possible, giving them little bits of tadpole food, which exists. It turns out you can buy. Um, And and so many of them became frogs. The other thing that happened, you know, my my dog, my lovely dog, Busby, discovered an abandoned nest of duck eggs down the garden. So Ruby, my eldest, said, well, we've got to find an incubator. We've got to do what we can to try and save some of these eggs. Well, four of them hatched out. So we've been living with ducklings. Ruby's done an amazing job, as has Lily, my other daughter. They've, they've really cared for these creatures. And, you know, initially in the house, then outside, you know, as they've grown, you know, they're about to fledge and go off into the wild. And these opportunities would just never have happened in, in the usual environment. You know, I'd have been off working, they'd have been at school. So even in this extraordinary time, um, I just feel like I've, yeah, managed to experience things that were totally unexpected and which will no doubt stay with me for the rest of my life. On your social media, you don't really reference your family all that much. Is this something you've consciously done that you you want to sort of protect them a little bit from the weird media bubble that you can sometimes live in? Yeah, 100%. That was a conscious decision that Sophie and I made very early on, uh, that we would uh, not uh, put pictures of the girls up on any social media. Because, you know, from my point of view, I do what I do. And a certain amount of my life is in the public eye. Um, unless you're into wine, you probably wouldn't know who I was. But if I'm in the supermarket wine aisle, you might sort of go, oh, hello. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good level for me. Um, but that's a choice I've made that my kids didn't make. And I didn't want them to be in any way later in life, uh, you know, having images of themselves as kids that they didn't have control over and that they hadn't chosen to deliver. So yeah, it was a completely conscious decision. And similarly with our marriage, you know, I love my wife. I've I've known Sophie since we were 16 years of age. I've loved her since the day I first met her. And that that's just my world. You know, that's my, my life. And I don't, to be honest, feel the need to share it on social media. If people are interested, you know, I'm happy to, to answer questions and talk about it, of course, because, you know, it's my, my, my world. But um, yeah, I just prefer to keep, keep all that stuff for us really and for our friends and family and I don't know if it's helped or not I certainly think that you know from a work point of view as well I think a lot of people who follow me probably don't want to know that stuff they're just interested in good value wine and you know what I'm up to professionally and and I I like to keep it like that but of course you know if people ask me questions I I tend to try and be as, as honest as I can be they're now, you know, of an age where, of course, they've entered the world of social media, but we don't tend to sort of interact in that world in public. For us, it's a system that works. Everybody's going to have a, a different approach. Well, why would teenage girls want to put pictures of their stuffy old dad on their social media anyway? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. What sort of husband and what sort of dad would you describe yourself as? I jump in on that and say I'm eccentric. Um, I know that I sing a lot out loud and um, I record songs and I kind of, you know, endlessly hang out with my dog and imagine that he can talk to me. Busby is just, you know, the light of my life. So I think they've had a fairly uh, eccentric parent in me. I would hope that I'd been as loving as I can be. I, I think that's the most important thing. I... I suppose in the last year, two years, I've made a conscious effort to stay home more because there was a period for about eight, nine years when I was really pedal to the metal. It seems to happen in your 30s and early 40s. It's when your career really takes off. And if you have children, if you're lucky enough to have a family, you know, that's all happening as well. And I think for me, you know, I maybe let the pendulum swing a little too far in the direction of work. Uh, It's not necessarily a regret. It's just 
it's a correction that I'm making, you know, as we speak. I would do anything, obviously, as any parent would for their kids. Uh, the one thing I wish for them is happiness. Whatever path they take, whatever world they wish to live in, that's up to them. If I can support them in that endeavour, then I will. Yeah. Well, you can only be guilty of doing something you know is wrong and still doing it. That's the only thing you can be guilty oh, of. Yes. So if, you oh, can, like, if you're like adjusting that, yeah. as you go, that's yeah. a sign of something good, right? I think that's, that's extremely well put, Bryn. Yeah, I think every day is an opportunity for us to just do a little bit better and maybe, you know, without sounding too sick of fans, you know, just do a bit better by a fellow human being. It, we get one shot. You get one shot on the planet. We're floating around on a giant rock in the middle of who knows what. Why not make it the best for everyone that we can? Now, your career, you got into wine by delivering wine from, yeah. from a little shop in Jersey. Yeah, that then sparked a bit of interest. But there's a big jump from delivering a bit of wine to people in Jersey to being a TV overlord of wine. <laughs> yes, there is a there is a strange segue uh, that takes place when I, I decided, you know, that wine I really loved and I'd worked in the shop and I was you know buying wine and tasting it and totally into it. But I also had an itch to scratch as a you know, a little bit of a performer, but also screenwriting. So I started writing initially scripts for radio, specialising in comedy. And then I, by sort of various quirks, ended up specialising in writing for animation, for cartoons. And one thing led to another. And I wrote a few spec scripts and got picked up by uh, a couple of producers and eventually landed jobs working on shows like Charlie and Lola. I was head writer on on Pingu for a couple of series. If you look on Amazon, I think my uh, episodes Pingu and the Toy Shop, Pingu Gets Lost are both cover editions on DVDs, which you can still buy. I don't get any money from it, but I think they're one ninety nine. And you know, I, I'm very proud of them. They're really funny. It's like watching a, a silent movie and, and writing those scripts. Everyone always says, "But hang on, they don't speak. How can you write scripts?" But the job of a an animation scriptwriter is to write everything that happens. So if Pingu steps in a paint pot, that's what I'm writing. Or his father's shouting at him, saying, "Go away." don't do that uh, you have to incorporate all of that so it's literally everything that happens in the world down to the last detail and when you think of the amount of expense that it costs to, to create an animation in a physical way um, using those uh, puppets you know there's a lot riding on those scripts so it was a it was a, a wonderful job to do and I, I absolutely loved it and I was thinking this would be my life to be perfectly honest and Sophie and I at that stage were living in Brixton in South London and you know we were talking about starting a family and getting married and all that stuff and yeah those things sort of occurred I think Sophie was pregnant with Ruby. It must have been 2004, 2005. And there was a reality TV show called Wine Idol that came along. And it was actually my friend Mark who sent it to me. Mark and Anna are really great friends of mine. And they've been sort of talismanic in so many ways in my life. But Mark is responsible for my wine career, uh, my love of rugby, my great love of real ale. You know, he was a real kind of advocate for that. Mark's just one of those kind of gateway humans. But yeah, he sent me this application saying, listen, mate, you're, you're great at screenwriting. He's a, a very successful animation scriptwriter now, today, still to this day. He said, look, you're, you're really good at writing animation, but I think you're a bit frustrated. I think you should go for this because you just talk about wine all the time. And these guys say that they're looking for a new, fresh face to talk about wine on satellite television. You should go for it. And I was a bit umming and ahhing and eventually I kind of got it together and wrote my application. And I think I got through the first hurdle and then work got really busy. And I was like, Mark, I just, I, mate, I don't have time. They want me to film something. He's like, you've got to do it. You've just got to do it. This is your thing. And he was so insistent. And eventually I'd film my little piece and I, I think 6,000 people downloaded the application form and it got down to the last 10. And I thought, oh my word, I'm never going to, you know, stand a chance against all these people who work in wine shops, sommeliers, people whose family make wine. And suddenly I'm down to the last three and then suddenly I'm standing you know, shaking Bill Hardy's hand of Hardy's Wines, who's presenting this award to me. And I can see my wife, you know, heavily pregnant, 
you know, elated on the one hand, but yeah, in the pub afterwards saying to me, how are you going to make this work? And I said, trust me, you give it six months. You know, if it doesn't work, I'll be fine. We'll just carry on screenwriting. I've got to give it a go. And I went and banged on doors. And the prize was actually not even to appear on the show. It was an audition effectively to appear on Great Food Live with Jenny Barnett. And I managed to get through that. First show was with Brian Turner. He made double thickness pork chops. I remember pairing the De Martino Legado Chardonnay, which was an Oddbins in those days for up 5 99 And he loved the pairing. And I loved doing it. And then sort of, you know, a few weeks later, they asked me back. And then, you know, I was on it like once a week. And then I was on it a couple of times a week. And then another show came looking around. Then I was on Taste for Sky One. And then I got a call for Rich and Judy Wine Club uh, from Amanda Ross at Cactus Television, who really effectively launched my wine career in a, on, on terrestrial television and, you know, brought me through to Saturday Kitchen, for which I'm eternally grateful always. It's a show I've done for must be nearly 40, 15 years. I think I'm the longest continuous person probably to be on the show. Mm. And for as long as it lasts, I'm, I'm just really grateful. I've loved doing it. Um, I adore it. And I really love the interaction with the audience. I love it when people get in touch. And to be able to have that platform to share my enthusiasm and passion for wine is uh, it's an absolute honour, to be honest with you. It really is. Lovely. My little brother, one directly underneath me, who's got eight years, he's not directly underneath me. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> on, a, on a very visual medium podcast. He uh, grew up watching Pingu and oh. he used to walk through the streets of Farnborough, the town I grew up in, <laughs> pretending to be Pingu. So he'd lean forward, hand behind his back, slapping his feet on the oh. ground as he went, going, murk, murk. So it, yeah. was, it was a disaster for me and it's all your fault. I'm so sorry about that. Here's to your brother and to that rather glorious uh, event. And nook, nook indeed, dear old Pingu. What a wonderful bloke. So what about you and sport then? A few years ago, London Marathon, how did that come about? Yeah, that was something that came about because my youngest daughter had an accident at a party and injured her head and was not well and ended up in the Royal Annex Hospital in Brighton. You know, it turned out that it wasn't the end of the world. She was fine. But I came away from that experience just blown away by the care that was offered to her in that children's hospital. And I found out that they don't get any funding from anywhere. They rely entirely on donations. So I immediately thought, well, what can I do? You know, and I was, you know, a big guy carrying extra weight. I thought, you know what, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to run the marathon for those guys. And, you know, I did. And I think I raised about 15,000 quid. I'm very pleased to do it. It's a small thing, but it's something. And yeah, the motivation for me was really to to do something for them because they'd been so kind to my daughter. Hmm. But also, you know, the side effect of that was getting in shape. And Michelle Rue Jr. Uh, was totally instructive in helping me and training me and, you know, really encouraging me and making me do it. He's a wonderful chef. But the thing that I would really love people to know about Michelle Rue Jr. is that he is he's an exceptional tutor and a really kind mentor I started running and I couldn't run 20 minutes and I thought I'm never going to be able to do this I looked like a, a you know an apricot that had been filled with raspberry jam and then squeezed far too hard I just looked like a mess and he was so encouraging Brent and every time I got an injury or things didn't go my way he always had the next idea the next way of getting me through so finally running that marathon and delivering it was great and I still run now actually I managed to pile on a few pounds last year but one of the things that, you know, I've taken much more seriously is uh, physical health because, you know, I, I try to look after my mind, but it's all too easy in my game, you know, rushing around, you know, not necessarily having the best diet. 
and you know not devoting enough time to exercise and i think it's paramount again my friend mark the gateway man you know he's such a a regular exerciser and he's been consistent in that for years and i think it's the most admirable quality and mental and physical fitness and health uh, for me go hand in hand i'm back to running which i'm really enjoying actually i must say and uh, shedding the pounds and feeling all the better for it it really is just that sense of exhilaration and my weight does go up and down it's something that i've you know historically never managed to be that consistent with and i always look to uh, to ways of maintaining it and honestly i think the simplest answer to that is just do what you can when you can with what you've got you know i always start out with 10 minutes a day on an exercise bike just you know see how that goes and you'll find very quickly it's an incredible rate at which the body does respond so who knows another marathon i don't know but i mean i love sport i love tennis i'm a massive fan of the rugby i love wimbledon you know i'm really lucky in my job i've been out to australia with the cricket i'm such a cricket fan as well and i remember being on a test match special with jonathan agnew one of the highlights of my career such a wonderful wonderful privilege to sit in that box meeting henry blofeld and you know i'm just yeah all of these old icons and legends of the game and the sport the mistake I think it's easy to make with cricket is to think it's a posh person's sport. And actually, it's it's really not. It's, it's, it's everybody's sport. You know, you look around the world, around the West Indies, South Africa, India, Pakistan, you know, increasingly in Afghanistan, um, Australia, obviously, New Zealand and, and here. But north to south, cricket is a sport that is enjoyed by people of all sorts of backgrounds. And I, I really love that you'll sit in the stands with people from a totally different continent, country, life, and you can just enjoy it together. Um, it's, it's magic for me. And football too. I support the Lewis Rooks and I do go to the games with Dave Lamb, my dear friend. I play a bit of golf every now and again. I watch the golf. I love it all to be honest, Brid. I, 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 skiing, if we're lucky enough in the year and I can take the family, that's something that, oh, being in the mountains, all doing the same thing, invigorated by the buzz and then coming home for a pile of molten cheese and a, a glass of uh, something filthy in the evening. Absolute magic. It's a tricky question to ask what someone's handicap is in golf because if anyone's like me, the handicap is picking up a golf club. But um, yeah, <laughs> if you were doing a nine-hole course, what would you take to go round that in? Well, anything from several hundred to several million, to be honest. I'm a terrible golfer. And in fact, the last time I played was a very long time ago because uh, I played consistently for several years. And I played with Dad. And in fact, we went to South Africa on a trip together once for a little golfing and wine trip, which is a time I look on very fondly indeed. But I remember I played with Dad and we were, I think we were in Devon maybe. I didn't have a handicap. I wasn't, you know, good enough. But on <laughs> this particular front nine, I, I, I failed to get loft on the ball for a single hole and I just remember calmly saying to my dad at the end of it, we're in the clubhouse, and I said, you know, I think, I think I'm going to just, just give the clubs a rest for a little while. I, I think something, something's not quite there. I will pick them up again. It's been several years, but I kind of do that with things anyway. So, you know, I will go back to golf, but I'm potentially the world's worst golfer. So multi-ball in golf and me would be either highly entertaining or extremely boring to watch. Joe, I'd love to play golf with you. I think we'd have a very equal game. I played my dad once in Alabama. We used to go to this really, really back end of nowhere golf course and they had a lake that you had to hit the ball over from one tee. And I'm terrified of lakes because I can't get the ball in the air very easily. So I I wellied the ball as hard as I could with this driver of some description and I walloped this ball and it must have gone, (laughs) I reckon, two foot off the ground and it skipped across the water skipping stones it went across the water maybe five or six bounces and went up the bank and landed on the green it was a perfect shot mate that's exceptional i tell you what i've always loved crazy golf on the day after we got married soph and i stayed the night in uh, lime regis it's a lovely little place in on the south coast and i remember going up and playing crazy golf on our, our first day of being married together so crazy golf forever will have a uh yeah place in my heart yeah uh rugby have you ever played rugby 
Yes, I was awful. Uh, I played it uh, at school. I wasn't very big, but I was quite fat. So I was always put as a, as a front row in the scrum. Uh, I was always the loose head prop. And uh, I was just frightened constantly of other other boys and for a long time, other men as a result. Um, but it was, yeah, it was terrifying. Um, I would wake up in a cold sweat praying mm. not to play. And, and for years, I found it a difficult sport as a result. But then my grandfather, my late grandfather, when I lived in Edinburgh, he lived in Falkirk with my grandmother, uh, was a huge and passionate supporter of rugby. And I would go out there and he also loved drinking, which was uh, something we had in common. But he had quite an eccentric habit, which was during the Six Nations. Granny would support Scotland. She was a proud Scot. He would support England and he would drink nothing but Campari and soda. Uh, So this, you know, burly, great big chap would be sitting there with his pink fizzy drink. And yeah, I remember sitting down for the first time and he passed me my Campari and soda. He said, right, I'm going to introduce you to the Six Nations. And I was hooked. I'm a massive Six Nations fan. Love the World Cup, obviously. But over the years, I've got to know a few rugby players. They are, yeah, they're so gentle. Yeah, so rugby, absolutely adore it now. And I love watching sport, Bryn, I won't lie. Anything that's on, I'll watch it. Darts, love it. Wolfie, yeah, get in. Are you aware of any differences to you, how you've changed since you've become more well-known from the TV appearances? That's a very good question. I... Honestly, I think I've become calmer. Um, I, I'm very comfortable talking to people one-on-one, especially. I've always felt weirdly okay standing on a stage or in front of a live camera talking. And I, I'm not sure why that is. Obviously, you, you get nervous and you know you focus, but, but it's something that it just feels right to me. Um, but I would say a, a sense of being more able to live moment by moment rather than constantly planning or having a very busy mind. That's probably the biggest change. And also being content in anyone's career, in your early years, you're striving, you have ambition, you have your plan, you have things you would love to achieve, you have your disappointments, everybody does. Um, but I would say in the place I'm at now that I, uh, I'm super grateful for the opportunities I've had. And I think to continue is thrilling. And it, I think really what it comes down to is you, you sort of get to a point where you realise it's not really up to you. It's up to the people who are watching or listening. If they want you to carry on, then producers and broadcasters and podcasters and bloggers and the rest of it will take note. But it's up to you to maintain that consistency and be available to it. And also to to sort of let it flourish both ways. I think that's something that I probably have changed in that regard as well. When I started, you know, it was television and radio and now it's podcasts and social media and everything has changed so the two-way connection i think is 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 really welcome and has made it feel yeah just just that much more i suppose more more real when you meet people who who would like to say hello it's uh it's generally speaking really lovely i tell you I'm, I'm, i'm releasing a single by the way go on in fact it's probably out I, I did it as a challenge. So I've got this video diary on Mail Plus called the Isolation Diary, which I've been uploading every week. They're very cool. They just let me do what I do. So one week I'll talk about frogs. The next week I'll talk about, you know, books. It can be anything. But one week I thought, oh, I'm going to write and record and release a single. And my family all kind of looked at me and raised their eyebrows. And I said, well, you know, there's kit on the computer. How hard can it be? Yeah, I released a single. Snow on the Borderline. Who knew that? Yeah. It's so rock. I play- no, it's so crazy. I played all the instruments. I, you know, three guitars. I put it all together on a garage band, you know, just sitting down and yeah, just why not? Why not? If you would like to listen to it, it is called Snow on the Borderline. It is on all the platforms, Spotify, iTunes, TikTok. You can find it on YouTube. It's everywhere. Have a look. And uh, it's either going to have been a terrible miss or you might enjoy it. Who knows?
Do you know what I'd really like to do, Ollie? I'd like to play out this podcast with a 10-second snippet of that song. It feels a bit partridge, doesn't it? <laughs> it exactly that. But, but I mean, what an honour to be, to be a partridge. I'm going to let you go. But before I do, just tell us a bit about the Ollie Smith podcast. Well, the podcast is called A Glass With, and we're currently on Series 7. And the format is very simple. I have a glass with somebody who's well-known. So I've interviewed Pink, the singer. I've done Sam Neill, the actor. Sting was incredible, and Trudy Styler, uh, the film director. We've had Dawn French on the show. I sport goes, Jonathan Agnew's done it, Stuart Broad. And I, I just feel like it is amazing to me that people want to do it. But it's also just so lovely because after one glass, people relax and they just open up and start telling you about their life and they let you into their world. It's a totally regular down to earth chat. And I'm also intrigued by what people bring to the show because they're allowed to bring a drink of their choice. So sometimes people bring something non-alcoholic or it might be gin or a, a mead or a beer or a whiskey. It can be anything. But it usually means something to them. So you've immediately got an end to the conversation and a, and a revealing kind of aspect to the nature of how the show might uh, turn out. You've done your podcast um, over the number of years and you've had some phenomenal guests on it. I'm going to ask you a question that you probably get asked all the time, but you can only keep one of those guests. Which one? I won't hesitate to say Dave Lamb because he's one of my dear friends and you know he's known for being very funny in his role as the voice of Come Dine With Me but I go dog walking with uh, Dave and whenever I'm with him I just feel like the depth in his heart is without measure so for that reason and that reason alone plus he's really funny to have a pint with and he loves a game of sport. You, you won't I know you won't answer this question but if you go could um, tell us the worst guest Ooh, the worst guest on a glass with. Yeah. That's a very good question. Do you know, I mean, I've had some very surprising guests. So I was really surprised by Lawrence Dwellen Bowen because he was hysterical. I mean, I think he's a very funny person. And, and again, you know, hidden depths to him. Um, he was surprising. I tell you, Mick Hucknell. Well, do you know, I mean, look, not for reasons of Mick. Mick was really good. But Mick Hucknell was the first episode we ever recorded. I didn't really know what the show was and I was probably a bit nervous. So... I mean, if I could redo one of them, I'd probably redo Mick because he was probably looking at me thinking, who are you, you great goat? Um, but I, uh, I, I, yeah, as far as the guests go, I'm just grateful to them all for taking part. Ollie, thank you very much indeed. I could talk to you, as you know, for hours upon hours. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ben, and it's, it's just lovely to hear your voice, mate. And thank you for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. Now, as promised, rather than the usual play-out music, I am going to play a bit of Snow on the Borderline, Ollie's single. And if you want to find out more about Ollie, you can find him on Instagram, at Ollie Smith, on Twitter, at Jolly Ollie, or just Google Ollie Smith and you'll find his website and all that goes with it. I'm Bryn Lucas. You've been listening to It's All About Me. If you've liked it, subscribe and listen to more. Right, Snow on the Borderline. Take it away, Ollie. sign of where you're going to the snow on the borderline you used to be mine 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 but the snow on the borderline
of your ghost disappear.